Father, would you be with us this morning as we study your text, your word, God, would you move and shape our minds, our hearts, and our actions, Jesus, to look like you. So we ask that you would meet us during our time this morning, God. Go before us, speak to our hearts. We pray it in your name, amen. <clears throat> the more I've studied this book, the book of Esther, where we are in week three of an eight-week series of this Old Testament narrative. It's 10 chapters long. And the more I've studied, the more I've read, the more I've sat in this book, two things are happening to me at the same time. I'm really disturbed, and I'm really comforted. And here's why. Um, if you've read this book, or if you've been with us in this series, um, there are disturbing parts of this story, really disturbing stuff, that these are real people, real events, real things that have happened, and if we slow down enough to sit in that, it's not some fairy tale, but actually these things happen. It should disturb us. It should bother us. And what we saw, if you're new, or just to catch us up to speed of where we are in chapter 3 this morning, um, chapter 1, uh, God's people, if you're unfamiliar with where Esther sits in the biblical story, um, it's a hundred years after God's people have been taken over by Babylon. Babylon comes in and takes over God's people. They tear down the temple. They put them in exile. Um, and then the Persians take over the Babylonians. And so that's where we see ourselves now. And the Persians, when they take over the Babylonians, they say, oh, you want to worship God's people, the Jewish people? You want to worship your little God? That's, that's fine. Go ahead. You can even go back and rebuild the temple. Go ahead and do that. We're not concerned about that. So this is where we find ourselves in the story. There's people that decide not to go back to Jerusalem, and they're sitting in Persia. And what does it look like to live uh, in, with God's law among people that are not God's people? And what we see in chapter 1, they're under the reign of King Xerxes, who's the Persian king at the time. And what we see in chapter 1, which is disturbing, it's this kind of drunken display of perceived power. Over six months Xerxes says, hey, come look at how powerful I am. Look at all the stuff I have. Look at all the riches I have as he's recruiting people to go to war against the Greeks. And in the midst of it, uh, what happens is this seven-day culmination at the end of the six months with just drunken party, which is, it, again, it's disturbing. And uh, Xerxes and his, his guys are going like, oh, they're just hammer drunk. And he goes, oh, you want to see something amazing? Bring in my queen, this objectification of this woman, his queen, Queen Vashti at the time. And she says, no, I'm not going to come and be on display. Now, we don't know why she says that, which... That kind of bothers me as well. I'd like to know the motives behind, but what we don't know. She says no, and so the king's guys are going like, you can't let her do that. How dare she? She should be banished from the kingdom. Not only that, we should make an edict to banish all women if they disobey their husbands. And when I read the account of, of Esther chapter one, like I get angry. Like I'm really bothered of the abuse of power that happens in that chapter. Like, it's really disturbing to me. Um, again, the, the misuse of power is staggering. I was talking to one of you this week, which was which a helpful conversation. And because God's name is not mentioned anywhere in the book of Esther, the only book of the Bible that doesn't have God's name in it, 
And I was in a conversation with one of you, and, and you said, well, m- maybe this is, is kind of a, a reflective plot point that the author is, is intentionally using. Just like the book of Judges, if you're used to that book, at the end of Judges in the Old Testament, the last line is, there was no king in the land, and everybody did what was right in their own eyes. And that last line operates as a framework for the entire book of Judges of this downward spiral. Is that if you take God out of the equations and we're just left to our own devices, we do terrible, terrible, terrible things to each other. Which is what we see in the first chapter of Esther 1. It doesn't get much better in Esther chapter 2. Because what happens is there's four years that pass between that moment, um, uh, King Xerxes goes and he fights against the Greeks in the Battle of the 300. He loses. He comes back. He's kind of licking his wounds and his, his, again, his advisors around him that are just foolish, that don't worship God, go, oh, this will make you feel better. You need a new queen. And so they go, yeah. So the objectification of women continues where uh, King Xerxes has this like really demented version of the bachelor where he's going to bring these women in and they're going to choose one. And that's where we get introduced to Esther. And we see even in the text in chapter 2, her, her, her backstory is already tragic. She's an orphan. Her cousin Mordecai takes her in. And the text says because of her beauty and because she pleases the king, she wins the spot. She is now the queen of Persia. But in the midst of that, Mordecai, her cousin, tells her, like, listen, don't tell him you're Jewish. You need to hide your Jewish identity. And again, we don't know why he does that. And we don't know why Esther does it as well. In the midst of it, man, there's just disturbing realities of the first two chapters. And again, it, it gets worse in chapter three. And so I'm disturbed as I read the details of the story and the lack of details in the story. But I'm actually also comforted. Because if you read the story as a whole and you understand as we're working through the narrative together, I'm comforted that God does what only God can do. He saves his people in spite of his people. Even though God appears to be silent because his name doesn't show up anywhere in the text, he's actively working, which is encouraging to me. It's comforting to me that in the midst of all this mess and all this brokenness, God is still doing what he's doing. Karen Jobes, who is kind of the foremost scholar or commentator on the book of Esther. She writes a commentary called the NIV Application Commentary. And I'm reading ahead and I'm in chapter 9 and she's talking about the decision that Esther makes in chapter 9, which is confusing and, and um, morally questionable. She, she declares, like she goes to the king, she wants one more day of war and a whole bunch of more people die. And scholars are like split on why she makes that decision. And the text doesn't tell us why she makes that decision. In the midst of that, this is what Karen Job says about this. This was helpful language for me as I'm wrestling with the text. It says this, Esther's request is another instance of the disquieting moral ambiguity that characterizes this story, the book of Esther. Rather than attempting to resolve it, we should reflect on it. That's good language for me because I want to resolve it. I want to put people in these categories. Yes, this person's bad, this person's good. And the text doesn't allow us really to do that. Instead of resolving that, we need to reflect on it. We need to ask God to hold this up as a mirror to our heart and reflect and go, what do we need to learn about looking like Jesus in the midst of these stories? So as we're going to pick up the text where we left off last week, we'll we'll finish the end of chapter 2. It'll roll into chapter 3. We'll look at all of chapter 3. It's going to be about 20 verses in total. 
I'm going to be reading from the NIV translation. It just helps uh, with the narration, I think, a little bit cleaner than the ESV. And here's what we're going to see in our reflection of the text this morning. Three things. We're going to see the embodiment of evil. We're going to see a call to courage. And we're going to see the cause of coincidence. The embodiment of evil, the call to courage, and the cause of coincidence. Let's pick it up. If you have a Bible, follow along with me. We are at the end of Esther chapter 2. We'll start in verse 19. We'll go all the way through. I want to read the whole uh, text together just for us to really understand. Again, it's a lot of text, but do your best to engage in the story with me as we read. This is Esther chapter 2, starting in verse 19. It says, when the virgins were assembled a second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. The king's gate, just for context, is kind of this, this spot where there was political conversation happening. It was kind of the hub. It was kind of the water cooler of the time. Verse 20, but Esther had kept secret her family background and nationality just as Mordecai had told her to, for she continued to follow Mordecai's instructions as she had done when he was bringing her up. During the time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, became angry and conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. But Mordecai found out about the plot told Queen Esther, who in turn reported it to the king, giving credit to Mordecai. And when the report was investigated and found to be true, the two officials were impaled on poles. So this is the Persian version of crucifixion or hanging. This is the idea that uh, if you cross us and you cross the empire, we are going to give a public display of your death so that everybody sees and goes, oh, I better not cross the Persian empire. We're going to see this continually show up. This was recorded in the book of the annals of the presence of the king. Verse 1 of chapter 3. After these events, King Xerxes honored Haman, the son of Hamathida, the Agagite, elevating him and giving him a seat of honor higher than all of the other nobles. All the royal officials in the king's gate knelt down and paid honor to Haman, for the king had commanded this concerning him. But Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor. Then the royal officials at the king's gate asked Mordecai, Why do you disobey the king's command? Day after day they spoke with him, but he refused to comply. Therefore they told Haman about it to see whether Mordecai's behavior would be tolerated. For he had told them that he was a Jew. Verse 5, Then when Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay honor to him, he was enraged. Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all of Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. Verse 7, in the twelfth year of King Xerxes, in the first month, the month of Nisan, that is Pur, that is the lot, was cast in the presence of Haman to select a day and month, and the lot fell on the twelfth month, the month of Adar. Just so you know, in verse 7, we see what we see is this is the 12th year of King Xerxes. So Esther now at this point has been queen for five years. So it's another kind of fast forward in the text. That time has happened, that Haman has been plotting for a while for this thing to take place. Verse 8, then Haman said to King Xerxes, there's a certain people dispersed among the peoples and all the provinces of your kingdom who keep themselves separate Their customs are different from those of all the people. They do not obey the king's laws, and it is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. 
If it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them. And I will give 10,000 talents of silver to the king's administrators for the royal treasury. Verse 10. So the king took his signet ring from his finger and gave it to Haman, son of Hamadetha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. Keep the money, the king said to Haman, and do with the people as you please. Verse 12. Then on the 13th day of the first month, the royal secretaries were summoned. They wrote out in the script that each province, in the language of each people of Haman's orders to the king's satraps, the governors and the various provinces of the nobles of the various peoples, they were written in the name of King Xerxes himself and sealed with his own ring. Verse 13, dispatchers were sent by couriers to the king's provinces with the order to destroy, kill, annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and children, on a single day, 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, and, the, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the text of the edict was issued as the law of every province and made known to the people of every nationality so they would be ready for that day. That day is going to be like an 11 months from the day that this edict gets written. So there's time that's going to happen before this actually happens. Verse 15, the couriers went out, spurred on by the king's command, and the edict was issued to the citadel of Susa. That's the capital of Persia. The king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was bewildered. Okay, that's the end of the chapter. Let's look at three reflections from this narrative from the text. The first is this, the embodiment of evil the embodiment of evil. And we see this embodiment in in two forms. There's an active evil and there's a passive evil that we see here in the characters in the text. The first is the active evil. That's the character of Haman. He seems in the whole book of Esther, he seems to be the only one that's actually not not, um, integrated. There's not good and bad. He seems to be all bad in the midst of this story. And there's an active evil against him. So who is Haman? Um, the text gives us a clue, even how he gets introduced in the first verse. He is um, an Agagite. So the original readers would have picked up on this. They would have understood it. They would have heard it. We might need to do some cultural understanding because um, an Agagite is somebody in the line of King Agag. And he was the king of the Amalekites. If you know anything about the Amalekites, in the first time they show up in the Bible is in Exodus 17. God's people been rescued from their bondage in Egypt, enslaved. They come out, they're, they're going towards the promised land, and these Amalekites come and they attack them in a ruthless way. And God is saying, you need to wipe them out. And then what we see in this king, uh, in 1 Samuel chapter 15, God's people have a king named Saul. And God tells Saul directly, you need to take out all the Amalekites. And if you know the story, Saul just like halfway obeys. He doesn't take everybody out. And he keeps, who does he keep? He keeps the king, King Agag. He keeps him. He keeps some other stuff. And that's actually when, when Saul um, it, it actually gets stripped of his throne from the prophet Samuel, comes and says, you disobeyed the Lord. And so what the the text is doing, even by putting Haman up front, is it's creating this tension because um, the Agagites and uh, specifically the Amalekites, they hated the Jewish people, and the Jewish people didn't like them. There's a long-running history of tension. And what we see in Haman, what we'll really see in chapter 6, we'll double down, he's motivated by his pride. He's motivated by this idea of power. And he's motivated by this kind of like, this, this idea of uh, racial ideals. And it is 
evil on display, actively. And some of you guys, you, you, you're in, in your life, you've seen evil on display, things that are coming against you that are not of the way of God. Let's look at how Haman uses this as, as a template to help us understand when we can identify active evil in our lives because he, he wants to kill all the Jews. He's not satisfied with just taking Mordecai out. He wants to kill everybody, all the Jews. And so how he presents this proposition to Xerxes, I think is helpful for us as a template to go, oh, that's what that typically looks like, evil actively on display. Look at verse 8 again in your Bibles. Again, it just says, Haman said to the king, there's a certain people dispersed among the peoples in the provinces of your kingdom who keep themselves separate. Their customs are different from those of other people, and they do not obey the king's laws, and it is not the king's best interest to tolerate them. Let's just look at that one verse and see how Haman uses it as this proposition, because what we see are four things in this one verse. The first thing we see is he starts with truth. Haman starts with truth with the king. He says, man, there's this group, they're dispersed and they're scattered. And that's true about the Jewish people. He starts with the truth and then he moves to this half truth. He says their customs are different, which is somewhat true, but also not true. It's a half truth. He moves from truth to half truth to this exaggerated truth. He says, who do not obey the king's laws. Now, Mordecai is not obeying the king's law because he's not bowing down to Haman. That's, that, that's true. But he's exaggerating on that. None of them obey the king's laws, which is this kind of exaggerated, blown out of proportion truth. So he moves from a truth to a half truth to an exaggerated truth to a lie. He says at the end, man, it's not in the best uh, king's interest to tolerate them. We, we kind of need to wipe them out. And have you seen that pattern happen with active evil? Maybe it's a conversation you've had with somebody that you're in a relation, relationship tension with. Maybe it's over an email, a coworker, a friend. You've seen they start with kind of this truth. They mix a half truth in there. Now it's an exaggerated truth. You always do this every single time. And then it eventually ends up in a lie. And so it's super disorienting because we kind of go, well, I, I mean, I mean, part of that's true. And, and if you're the receiver of this act of evil, you, you, you kind of get spun around and you go like, I don't, I, I mean, some of that seems right. Isn't this exactly what we see in Genesis 3 with our true enemy, this active evil presence in Satan where he, he takes this truth and he starts there and then he does this half truth and he does this exaggerated truth and he eventually tells lies. This is the pattern that consists of active evil in our world. And it's helpful for us to realize that. Mike Cosper has a book called um, Faith Among the Faithless, where he writes about Esther. It's a great book if you're reading along. It's really uh, easy to read and to engage. And he, he says this. He's talking about like this idea that Haman has this lie. And because he has this lie to wipe out the Jews, this is what he says. He says, once captivated by the lie, the sins necessary to pursue the dream just get justified. Because once active evil decides and locks in on this lie, they will do whatever it takes to justify that lie. And so again, you get turned around and confused because somebody like, they really can be convincing about this lie. And you start to go, well, is that true? There's an active embodiment of evil that we see. 
Again, Karen Jones is helpful when she says this. She says, a sub-theme of the Esther story is that when such maniacal need for honor and respect is coupled with absolute power, the results is opposition and injustice. And do you see that as active evil in our world? That when there's power involved in this active evil, that it always results in oppression and justice. And again, some of you are experiencing active evil because I'm in your stories. I'm having conversations with you and you're going, this doesn't make sense. This isn't right. And the people you're dealing with aren't operating in God's economy. They're operating outside of it. And they're using this kind of truth, half-truth, exaggerated truth, lies, and you're getting spun around and you're disordinated. You, do you know that there's an active evil in our world? Can we at least recognize that, that like the enemy, there, there's an invisible enemy that is on the attack and the prowl against us, against God's people, against God's good world. There's an internal uh, enemy in us, in our flesh, in our sinful desires, and then that gets played out and normalized in a world, an external enemy. We see evil all around us, and we ought to pay attention to it. So that's an active evil, but there's also a passive evil that we see in King Xerxes. If you look back at the text, we see an active evil in Haman, a passive evil in Xerxes. Verse 10, he, he just gives away his signet ring. He just kind of, he takes it off and he gives away his power. He's not holding his responsibility well. He's gone, well, whatever you say, Haman. And then in verse 11, he says, do with, do with the people whatever you want. He's not leading well. He's not caring for his people well. He's just giving over to this active evil that's overwhelming him in the moment. And when active evil goes with passive evil, um, typically the active evil will take over, but the passive evil, you're still held responsible. I mean, isn't this what we see again in Genesis chapter 3? Adam and Eve, God's creation, they, they have this responsibility with them to, to, to be a part of God's good creation, to steward the cultural mandate, to do great things. And then this active evil comes into the conversation, comes into the narrative, and then they just passively kind of hand off by disobeying and eating this fruit, being tricked into believing what the enemy is saying is true. And some of us, before we come into our relationship with Jesus, um, we would go, well, we're not in that active evil category. Like, we're not killing people. We're, we're not Hitler. That's always the thing that gets compared to Hitler. We're not Hitler, right? Um, actually, Haman gets compared to Hitler all the time because of actually what they're trying to do and wipe out the Jews and their tactics. But we go, ah, well, we're not Hitler. We're, tr we're trying to be good people. The problem is before we give our lives to Jesus and we get covered um, in our evil, we're still a part of the problem. We're still passive recipients. We still give away things and we give away our heart and we, we have problems in the midst of our evil. We are a part of the problem and we need saving. Well, we see in this text that there, again, is an embodiment of evil both around us and in us. And so there's a call to courage. And that's what we see in the character of Mordecai, this next phase as we look far at. Well, why does Mordecai not bow in this text. This is interesting because, again, in our Bibles, we have chapter separations, right? There's chapter two, chapter three. The original text, it doesn't have those separations. So when the original people read this, they would read chapter two and it would just flow right into chapter three. We have kind of a natural break and so we kind of, in our own compartmentalized brains, do that. But if you go back to the end of two, what's happening in the story? 
Mordecai happens to be at this right place at this right time. He hears about this assassination, that plot that's going to take place on the king. And he goes and he tells Esther, she tells the king, his life is saved. And he credit the text says. So everybody that would be reading this story, the natural next thing that would happen because of the culture, you just saved the king's life. Do you know what? You're going to get promoted. You're going to be the next on top. And so we, we kind of read that story and we think it breaks naturally, but actually the next thing we see, the next part of the story is, does Mordecai get elevated? Now Haman gets elevated. And so we would pause and we'd go like, wait a second, that's, that's a weird turn in the story. We would assume that Mordecai is the next one to get elevated. He just saved the king's life, but that doesn't happen. Haman, this Agagite who hates the Jews gets elevated. So we don't know why Mordecai won't bow down to him. Maybe it's because he's like, man, that should have been me. Have you ever been in a situation where you get overlooked? You do something good and somebody else gets the promotion? Does that kind of do something in you, the injustice of that? And you go, wait a second. How are they dating that person? I'm way better than them, right? Like, if you're single? Like, like that's, this stuff happens to us all the time. And so we don't know why Initially, kind of Mordecai won't, but now we don't know if that's a part of the problem. We don't know if because uh, Haman's an Agagite and he hates the Jewish people, he goes, well, I'm not going to bow down to him. He hates our people. But eventually, he ends up saying he's Jewish. That's what we see. He, he goes like, okay, I'm, I'm a Jew. I'm not going to bow down. Maybe he's not bowing down because you're only supposed to bow to God. We don't actually know. The text doesn't tell us what I would hope to believe Because again, if we understand Mordecai's backstory, and we see it in chapter two, that he's not taking a Jewish name. Mordecai's not a Jewish name. We talked about that last week. Um, He tells Esther, don't don't share your your heritage, your identity as a Jewish person, that you worship Yahweh. We don't. So he probably looks more like the culture than he does like a Jewish person. And for some of us, we find ourselves in that situation. If people around you had a conversation about you, would they say that you follow Jesus? Do they know, oh, well, I know they go to church or whatever, but they're just like everybody else. Do you look more like the culture or do you look more like Jesus? Because some of us are kind of caught in between. We're kind of compromised. We're in this culture and we go like, well, I don't want to look like a weirdo. Like, so, I mean, my faith is private. People don't need to know that. And, and you know, I'm going to do my best to, to go to church on Sunday and follow Jesus. But, but, you know, my coworkers don't need to know that. My family doesn't really need to know that. I don't want to be put in this box. And so maybe you're a little bit like Mordecai and you're not really following Jesus outwardly. And maybe God needs to do something in your life to wake you up to the reality of following him which is maybe what happens in Mordecai. Again, we don't know. I want to believe that Mordecai sees he doesn't get promoted. Haman does, and this guy's not good. And maybe God is using that to go, Mordecai, it's time to start following me in front of everybody. But there's a call to courage. There's a call for Mordecai to be courageous. And again, you you even look in the text and the guards are going like, why don't you bow down to him? Like this doesn't make sense to us. And for some of us to really follow Jesus, it's not going to make sense to other people. Like, wait a second, you're not sleeping with your boyfriend? You're not sleeping with your girlfriend? Why why aren't you doing that? Like, that doesn't make any sense. Oh, you're not going to cut the corner to to get the promotion? Like, like, nobody's going to know. Like, I don't understand why you would do that. 
Why wouldn't you move in with your fiance? It's going to save money. And you go, no, I'm not going to do that because that wouldn't be in line with what God has for me. It would be disobeying him. And Mordecai seems to finally turn this corner to some point, to to this courage to go, okay, I'm not going to bow down to this. And some of us, man, we just keep bowing down to our idols. And there's a call to Kurtz to stand up against this active evil, not to be a part of a passive participant, but to go, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to live differently not in a weird way. There's all kind of weird Christians. I'm not talking about like antisocial, like you, I mean, you know those people, maybe you are those people. I don't know, but like just, but, but you're going, no, I'm going to follow Jesus at every cost. And it's not going to make sense to people. This is the call to courage that we see Mordecai pressing into. And it's actually going to be a domino effect when we see it with Esther in the next chapter. The problem is, even in the world, uh, not to be passive recipients of evil, but actively rebelling against the idols of the world, the problem is we still fall all the time. We want to be courageous. We want to do the right thing. And sometimes we do it, and a lot of times we don't. And we blow it. And God keeps revealing new idols to us, and we keep going, ah, man. The good thing is, that the truth of the gospel tells us that even when we fail, we have somebody that advocates for us that does not fail. And that's what we see in this last point, the cause of coincidence. And we'll see these themes run throughout the rest of the book. We'll see this kind of, this embodiment of evil in Haman. We'll see this kind of call to courage, like, listen, don't bow down to the idols. Actually walk with God. And then we will see this cause of coincidence. And obviously I'm using this word in a way because I, I just don't think There are coincidences. And we'll see two of them here. That again, because God's name is not present in the text does not mean we don't see him actively working. And we see that. I mean, again, look back at the end of chapter two. Mordecai is at the king's gate. He hears about this assassination attempt. Why is he at that exact place at that exact time? Do you think that's coincidence? And we do this all the time. Like, I just, he just happens to be, what if he wanted to get some food? Or what if he was in a conversation? Like, I don't think those guys were probably really loud in their assassination plot to kill the king. I think they were probably quiet. But for whatever reason, God places Mordecai at that place at that time. That's not a coincidence. Your story, the fact that you are here, the fact that you run into somebody at the grocery store, the fact that you're in that conversation with that person at that time is not a coincidence. It's not. God, in the midst of all the disruption, is still keeping his promise. And he's placing certain people at certain places in certain time. It's not random. Your life's not random. You might think it's random. It's not random. The things that are happening to you, God has a plan for you. He's trying to help you understand that and see that. Now, this doesn't invalidate the pain in your life of things that have been done to you or things that you have done But just like in Genesis 50 at the end of Joseph's story, and he's having conversations with his brothers who sold him into slavery, he goes, man, you meant it for evil, but God used it for good. So even in the pain of your life, it does not negate the fact that God is still using it. He's still on the move. It is not a coincidence. It is not by accident. 
So that's the first example of we see that Mordecai's in the right place right at the right time to save the king's life, which again, we'll come back to later in the story. We'll see that. It doesn't make sense right now because Mordecai's going, what the heck? I saved your life. Like I should be promoted. And he's probably frustrated. But if you keep reading the story, we see what happens. And some of us are in this moment where we haven't seen the inside of the, sto- the, the end of the story and we're frustrated because of God, I honored you. And then this is what happens to me. Keep staying with the story. God is doing something intentionally. The next way we see this example or this coincidence is the casting of lots. So Haman has this evil plan. He, he casts lots, which when people do, it's kind of rolling the dice or we kind of flip a coin to say, okay, when should this day be to wipe out all the Jews? And he casts the die or casts the lots in verse 13 and it lands on a specific date. Now, again, we miss this all the time because we don't understand the Jewish calendar. We don't understand what's going on here. But look back at verse 13. It says, The dispatches were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with an order to destroy, kill, and annihilate the Jews, young, old, women, and children, on a single day, the 13th day of the 12th month of the month of Adar, and the plunder their goods. The original readers, and even as we see the edict goes out, they would have heard that date and they would have just gone, Wait a second. This is the, it's 11 months down. This is the day that we're supposed to be wiped out? Because on the calendar, do you know what that day is in the Jewish calendar? It's the first day of Passover. And they would have gone, wait a second. And if you know the story of God rescuing his people from Egypt, he sends Moses as, as a Jesus figure to deliver them, to rescue them out of their bondage, out of their slavery. He sends plagues on the people to say, no, I am the God over all of it. You worship these false gods, I actually control everything. And then this last plague he sends, and what does he do? He says, take a lamb. Tells his people, take a lamb, and I want you to kill it. And what I want you to do is I want you to take that blood, and I want you to put it up on your doorpost. Because tonight, an angel of death is coming, And everybody that has the blood of the lamb over their doorpost will be passed over. And so the Jews from that moment celebrate every year Passover for their deliverance, for their salvation. And this is the exact day. Haman thinks he rolls the dice and goes, I got a date, this is it. He thinks he's going to win. This act of evil goes, yep, I got him. And God's just sitting back. And the question becomes like, is God gonna save his people again? He did it once. This is the exact date the dice fall? You think that's random? That's not random. It's not random. And we have this active evil in Satan. He kind of rolls the dice and he goes, oh, I got Jesus. I got him on the cross. He's dead. I am going to win this thing. And all the time God knows, three days later, he's going to defeat death. And he's going to deliver us from this evil by the blood of the lamb. And so wherever you are in the midst of this active evil, this passive evil, this call to courage, do you know that God is working out the story for you? And man, that's encouraging. That's comforting. In the midst of all the disruption and the pain that we experience in life, we can go, okay, I want to trust God for this. I want to trust that I have a savior that is going to rescue me. And that's what this story is about. That's what our story is about. But man, we quickly forget. And we put ourselves on the throne 
and we don't submit to God, we don't submit to his spirit, we don't submit to his timing, and then we see what we see here at the end of the text, which is maybe the most disturbing part of the story, the very end, the last verse, what does it say at the end of three? That the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. When we are the kings of our own life, People will be confused. We will be confused. It will be disruption. It will be chaos. But aren't you thankful we have a God that sits on his throne and Jesus has paid the price that allows us to step into that courage. And when we fail, we go, okay, we're gonna fail in our courage, but we know that God has produced what we need to understand, to step into that courage. Again, we're gonna fail again and we're gonna step in again because God has Produce the results that only he can produce. He is in the midst of making us new. Jesus is the embodiment of love, not evil. He's the answer to the ultimate call of courage as he heads to the cross, abandoned, naked, beaten, humiliated, and ashamed so that we can be made secure, clothed, protected, and made free. And that's good news. Let's pray. Father, would you help us realize that this morning? that in the midst of evil that we encounter, would we not be a part of it being passive, but would we press against it with courage that you give us from your spirit? And would you help us realize that, God, you are in control? And even when we fail, you're still holding on to the promises because of what Jesus has done, not because of what we have done. Would you help us see that this morning? Would you help us feel it in our hearts as we respond to you? We ask it in your name. Amen.